everyone. Welcome to episode four of It's Always Saturn with me, your host, Christina Langell. Today's guest is Christine O'Leary. She is a Harrisburg area poet, artist, and magician, and she came on the show to talk primarily about Saturn. So this is definitely a more magic, esoteric, occult-focused podcast episode. Christine will be one of the featured poets in the upcoming OK Zoomers event with Mad Poets Society out of the Philadelphia area. That is happening on Monday, September 19th, this coming Monday, if you are listening to this podcast on the day it's released. So please check that out. If you go to Mad Poet Society's website, you can find a link to register for that virtual event. We're really looking forward to it. It will also be featuring local poet Emily Murtoff, as well as Philadelphia area poets Chris Courtney Martin and Fareshta Sholavar. So I was really proud of us for this episode, and I was really just taken with it listening back because when you're around someone all the time in a family aspect, you can kind of forget their brilliance on an esoteric or academic level. When you hear them talk about something that's very much in their wheelhouse in a situation like this, it's like, oh shit, I actually met my mother-in-law simultaneously when I met my husband. So I think we would have become friends if we hadn't become relatives, if that makes sense. But this podcast definitely reminded me of why that is. I was happy that Christine and I managed to avoid getting too deep into the Protestant Catholic debate, which tends to rear its head often as I was raised in a very old school German Protestant situation and my husband was raised in a very Irish Italian Catholic situation. So as you can imagine, as it often does, it can kind of turn into a silly debate since neither of us actively identify as either of those things today as adults. But it is something that I think is very visceral for people, whether they're practicing any kind of religion or not. Trigger warning, if that's something that gets to you, it does come up towards the end, briefly. Another thing, this isn't so much a trigger warning as a clarification. Throughout the episode, you hear Christine refer to her brain and the way her mind works. She also talks about having learning disabilities. I just want to clarify that she's not she's not being self-deprecating and she's not inappropriately using references to learning disabilities. I just wanted to clarify that since we don't really come out and speak directly about that. I don't want anyone to think that she is making light of a problem that other people have. She is very much speaking her own truth. Another thing worth noting, if you're not super familiar with esoteric things, there is a lot of gendered language used and there's a lot of emphasis on the masculine and feminine when you are practicing magic. However, the important thing to remember is that the masculine and the feminine do not reside exclusively in the cisgendered male and cisgendered female bodies and entities, gods, spirits, angels, anything referred to with those he or she names usually encompass something greater than one or the other. But all human beings encompass both of these things in different degrees. So it is not in any way intended to make anyone feel uncomfortable or apply a cisgendered lens to the spiritual. If anything, it invites people to invoke and appreciate and engage with the wide spectrum of energy available to and within all of us. So without further ado, I mean, if you're looking for poetry, we don't even touch on that. We will be doing a part two, and I do hope to talk to her about poetry some, but we are mostly talking about time about magic and about Christine's visual art in this episode. So thank you so much for being with us and it's always Saturn, which you will definitely learn here in this episode. It is always Saturn. Oh, so I should say hello. Good morning, Christina, or good afternoon, I should say. Good afternoon. Lovely to talk with you again. You too. I've honestly been very anxiously awaiting this one because I feel like doing a podcast with your mother-in-law on Mercury Retrograde is <laughs> a fun little challenge. <laughs> a recipe for disaster. Yeah. It is actually the Mercury hour, though, that you scheduled it. So, And I am profoundly affected by Mercury Retrograde. So if I say something completely insane, you know, you know where I live. 
just blame it on 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 mercury stickering in the corner i kind of imagine that you really thrive in mercury retrograde but i don't know why i thought that no mercury retrograde absolutely wow you want to see a open mouth insert foot yeah no it's it's like a period of time where it's like foot and toe sandwich but then again that's most of my life anyway well that's all right (laughs) yeah well no it tends to be a time for me when i have as present computer difficulties Phone difficulties. I think as of two days ago, my ear pods are missing. I have one of them, the other one, I, you know, so on and so forth. Oh, no. Well, nothing like a Mercury retrograde to make us slow down and think before we open our mouths. Absolutely. That's what I, I try to look at it that way. I try to look at everything regarding astrology as just psychology rather than divination. Interesting. Very interesting. I, I've Psychology makes sense. Uh, astrology as divination is something I do not understand quite as well as I do understand psychology as analysis. Yeah, I've just found a lot of people who are astrologers will look at dates coming up and say, you know, this is going to happen or watch out for this or watch out for that. I think sometimes it can be helpful reminders, but a lot of the time it's like, I don't see a lot of value in any field of trying to predict the future like that. Prophecy is a slippery beast. I've often warned people about the dangers of prophecy. Prophecy, no matter how accurate it is, generally will manifest in a way in which you did not expect anyway. So attempting to anticipate too precisely just leads to a lot of oh hell moments in my book. I agree. One of the reasons that (laughs) I'm having you on is because of your relationship with Saturn, because Saturn's your your whole spiel. So you're a more experienced teacher than me and probably have a much deeper knowledge of the topic than me. So I thought it would be a good conversation to have with you. It's interesting because I've only recently, like last oh, so many years, probably decade, come to really understand Saturn's role in my life. But it's interesting. How do you see me as very Saturn? Well, I don't really see you as very Saturn, but I know that you, you like him a lot. Yeah, he's got a special place in my life. God knows. Notice it's our whole family. I think it's funny that obviously knew that Christian had a tattoo of Saturn on his back when we met because I saw it, but I didn't put it together till I realized that the Saturn symbol was showing up constantly everywhere in my life that I had sort of like followed, followed the white rabbit. Oh, like literally matrix style, just followed some guy with a Saturn (laughs) tattoo. And now my world is full of Saturn all the time. We each have each other's sun, moon and rising sign on our ring fingers that we got, you know, years ago. And we both have Capricorn in our charts. He's Capricorn moon and I'm Capricorn rising. So we both now have Saturns on our fingers as well. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, and you have Saturn. You always wear a Saturn nose ring. Well, I it does seem like a very familial situation. <laughs> you know, it, it is. It's funny because on the one hand, yeah, and the Saturn nose ring, yeah, unfortunately, a Saturn nose ring got hooked on something. And because it's a corkscrew, it's temporarily out right now. Oh, no. But, but the, tattoo, I mean, the tattoos on my back are all Saturn. And honestly, yes, it is a force of which I have come to understand. Although, um, you know, if you look at my birth chart, it's funny how profoundly pronounced the role of Saturn is actually my natal chart as well. It took me a long time to quite understand what that is. And if you would, as you probably know, interacting with me, I probably act, shall we say, the least Saturnian person. <laughs> I would say you can be an authority for sure. But otherwise, yeah, I would say there. it's just not not obvious to me that you have a lot of Saturn going on. <laughs> It's and that's where you know Saturn is an interesting, an interesting. I don't want to say an interesting being, an interesting force. Yeah, it's taken me a long time to understand Saturn and how Saturn operates. It, interesting enough, I tend to equate authority more with Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter is more the emperor, you know, to use the, the Trump card, so to speak. But I see what you mean about the certain authority of Saturn. It's kind of a, a very different type of authority. It's kind of a, it's, I guess, your, there's your, your military authority, I guess. There's mm-hmm. your order, structure, hierarchy, as opposed to, I think, a Jupiterian as more of like. He's like the head honcho authority. Yeah, like, like the king, you know, dispensing things, you know, kind of ruling and type of thing. Whereas, yeah, Saturn is just like, oh, I'm sorry, did I step on you? <laughs> Oops, sorry. <laughs> they're yeah. kind of like your two dads. You know, 
<laughs> there's fun dad who gives you stuff and mean dad who makes all the rules. <laughs> well, and ironically um, for me, Saturn is, and this is just in my life, Saturn for me has reflected almost more maternally in a certain way, so to speak. My mother's a Capricorn. She exhibits all the traits of her sign, which can be a very good thing and it can be quite challenging. In many ways, and you may see this, I think, in your significant other, Saturn in many ways perhaps is positive because I'm the kind of being that I need the structure that Saturn applies, boundaries that Saturn applies. I'm one of those people uh, that creatively, especially, I will grow, you know, it, it's, I'll just, you know, me, it, it's squirrel, what? Squirrel? Wait, that's a rabbit. Oh, I just saw a pheasant, didn't I? And it can be helpful to have the blinders on the eyes that Saturn can apply for. And sometimes you need that rather from the outside. Well, that's a lovely metaphor, blinders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we tend to think of them as being cruel for a horse, but I respect the idea of needing something to keep the eyes focused. Yeah, that's why Christian has that tattoo, mm -hmm. as he explained it to me at least, was to sort of invoke Saturn into his life because he didn't have enough of it or enough structured discipline. <clears throat> yeah, and I think that's a form of Saturnian makeup as well. It's it's something you know similar with me. Maybe in my own life is I have formed a relationship, or I probably already had a relationship with the being that I'm able to interact with them. One of the interesting things, I think, with Saturn for me is, remember your observation about me and my clocks? Time, you know, of course, Saturn is Kronos. Saturn is, you know, father time. And interestingly enough, as you know from having to put up with me, I don't do well with time. No, no. <laughs> I have no sense of it in the sense of, and, you know, when we think about these forces, we tend to think of them as being almost polarized. It's something I've had to at least consider is figuring out Saturn as a comprehensive force and not as a specifically polarized force. You know, the opposite side of the temporal element of Saturn is the non-temporal side of Saturn. You know, there is the field of time and then there is a field that is beyond time. My problem is I'm, I don't do well with time as a constrictor. I do better with time as a river or as a flow. It's a, it's a movement for me and not a series of individual specific broken down slices and modules which is how most people perceive time. So it's easy for it to get lost. And it's not, you know, you'd think Saturnian intense time management. I think that's one side of it. But I think on the other side of it is kind of an ability to swim through it and to navigate it without actually necessarily being aware of the constrictors. It doesn't do great for the material plane, but hey, interesting way to go through life. I mean, I would think when you think about even Doctor Who or... Just any sort of time traveling stories. It's actually the people who master time are the people who have no relationship to like the structured linear type of time. They're the ones that can actually like use time to their advantage and move through it. And that makes sense. You know, I don't exactly watch television. And as much as I've heard the most amazing things about Doctor Who, I haven't watched it, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it waxes and wanes. If I was recommending Doctor Who to you, I would just recommend certain episodes rather than trying to watch the whole thing because some of the seasons aren't very good and, and it's a lot. It's been on since the 60s, so it's not really... Well, I'm planning on focusing on the Sandman. That's going to be my television indulgence for the year. So good. Oh, yes. But also kind of getting into similar topics. You know, there's there's something interestingly, something interestingly Saturnian in some ways about the Sandman. Something yeah, death even has that on her face, not in the show, but in, in some of the comic book. Yeah. Well, and death, when you think about it, um, you know, because you really can't talk about Saturn without talking about death. You know, Saturn is also, and you know, I'm a devotee of the Dark Mother, the Black Madonna. Saturn is also, it's not just death, but Saturn is also the mother. Saturn is Binah. It's the third Sephiroth, and the Black Mother is the womb, but she is also the tomb. You know, the deities associated with death that are associated with Saturn are also many of them associated with the Great Mother. And really, they kind of have to be because they are the same place, they're the same gate. I think that's really interesting. I said that once to someone, like, I thought Capricorn and Saturn were related to Mother. And, like, three people were standing around who all immediately jumped to correct me. And were like, no, absolutely not his father. <laughs> and then I followed back up with my sister, the astrologer, about it. She was like, no, I did tell you that. And I meant it. That's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, I mean, I'm... Capricorn rising so I feel very I connect with like the severity of the feminine very much 
as a person. And so like, it relates to me, it makes perfect sense, especially because the sort of executive function that women and the mother kind of provide in a home, no offense to men or anything. I I think most of the responsibility is in terms of organization and structure do in, in households that are obviously two people. If I don't know, (laughs) I don't want to over gender things, but, but I do think that there's a tendency or it's like my brain has everyone's schedule. It knows everything that's in the refrigerator. It knows how much money is in the bank. Like my brain. Oh, Christina, you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And you are Saturn at its finest. No, seriously. My husband's the same way. And you have these, these like little living noodles like your husband and myself who need that Saturnian structure on which to be able to like hang on to and, and function, you know, it's, and that's the, that's the polarity, you know, it's, you think about, like you said, the mother. The mother is both form and function. She's both structure and and growth. I think people are too quick to make things narrow, you know? No, no, Saturn can't be the mother because Saturn is the father. All right, fine, in one perspective. But if you go with Western capitalistic, I hate to call it, you know, magical theory. You know, I'm no expert on that. But if you go with, you know, the thinking in line going with capitalistic thinking, you know, by necessity, this is something Saturn is found on its three, the Sephiroth three. It is, it is Binoc, and Binoc is a feminine Sephiroth, but Binoc is also Saturn. And those gates are the same, you know, you're aware I'm a Thelemite, and, you know, the gate passing into life and the gate of passing into death. The soul is still moving from one thing to another, and the mother is both. The mother is both the womb and the tomb, so to speak. So why people would say that Saturn can't be inherently feminine, I would say is short-sighted or abbreviated thinking. But everybody has their own way of doing things, so God bless. I don't like getting into the, the, the magical arguments of how many angels can fit on the head of which side of the pin and whose opinion are you taking, and exactly which grimoire did you read to find it. <laughs> I, I kind of get, you know, it's the same thing with my philosophy. It's like, you know what? whatever i'm not gonna argue with you because you find a source i'll find a source we'll find 18 sources it's like the old thing that if you're going over the torah you know you've got three rabbis in the room you're gonna come out with four opinions occultists are the same way i don't know what everyone's experience coming into esoteric stuff is but at least for me even though i'm a big nerd and i do like researching things i came to it spiritual experience first and then like information later i think a lot of intuitive people probably just naturally find their way to the texts and the body of knowledge about the occult and these things because they're already acting in a certain way or intuiting things and they want to better control and understand they want to apply that saturn to their natural skills that makes sense so for me i mean that's how i wouldn't argue my intuition with you know, someone who's like a very esteemed magician or something like that. But for my own purposes, I tend to err on the side of what makes natural sense to me, I guess. Well, I think a lot of people, I mean, those of us who are drawn toward magical practices, I'm assuming that you're going to warn your listeners that I tend to be drawn toward more of the magical aspect of things. You know, I I tend to see things through that lens. I think people who are born to it have those intuitive experiences. And I think that we find our way to magic because we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. I think it's, as you say, the Saturnian, you know, I think it's definitely a Saturnian. I think it's, I think it's a draw for a lot of people. You know, you start off because you do intuit these things. And then you've got to figure out, especially in our culture, where our culture provides absolutely no frame of reference whatsoever to understand intuitive experiences, much less anything deeper than intuitive experiences after a certain point. And I look at it kind of like we get majority of our psychologists get attracted to psychology because they're batshit crazy. These <laughs> <laughs> people, holy shit, there's no reason I got out of the field for God's sake. Their own holy grail. They went into it because they know that there's something that's not quite kicking around properly in there, and they want to find out what it is. That's, I think, a lot of what draws human beings into what we pursue is trying to make sense of our own experience one way or the other. So it kind of makes sense. You know, Saturn's great for all that stuff. Saturn's also great for a really good, solid kick in the teeth. (laughs) But I respect that about him. I've come to see Saturn in a fairly 
anthropomorphic fashion, but that has been, I would say, a gift of mine to get to understand the being in that fashion. As far as the seven archons, you know, the rule of the, the uh, manifested plane, Saturn is quite profound, uh, quite interesting. Anthropomorphizing Saturn, I'm sure, is not the most effective way of understanding it, but the elements there. What you said made me think about one of my first memories is this recurring dream that I used to have when I was really little of being a two-dimensional dot on like a, a white field, like a white plane. And everyone was just these yellow, pink, and blue two-dimensional dots, almost like a, a twister <laughs> board, what existence was. Uh-huh. And there was this giant black Doc Martin style kind of combat boot looking work boot situation that would just come and stomp on the dots and they would disappear. I was terrifying and it was this dream that I had all the time when I was little (laughs) and just now when you said it and you're talking about anthropomorphizing Saturn for some reason I thought of that and I thought of when I first started seeing Saturn all the time in my life it started really freaking me out because my automatic association was the scythe and like the cutting and death and I was just like oh god this is an omen I'm gonna die any moment Uh, because I tend to get paranoid easily. I don't know. That wasn't actually a question. That was just a series of of thoughts. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I mean, I I do find him, despite my love of books and the research I do, a lot of the stuff that, I don't know. The the nice thing is I'm sure that you have an editing button here. So I'm thinking (laughs) you can always just delete or make it sound like I'm saying things like, you know, God knows what you can edit it into. But Saturn is a really interesting being. And as much as I enjoy, and I do, I do my research, I I do a lot of work formally in magical studies and magical practice, but I I do tend to navigate primarily through, call it uh, intuitive experience, I guess. A lot of firsthand interacting with the things that I'm exploring. I prefer to go to the source, I suppose you'd say. And it's, it's a very interesting being. I would say... Saturn, and to use the gendered pronoun of he, because Saturn is primarily a masculinized force, but we tend to understand Saturn as a malefic. But I think it's really a solid misunderstanding of Saturnian forces, and I think it's a result of the fact that we are in this material plane where Saturn is perceived as the enemy. You know, if we did not have Saturn to operate as our constrictor, as our escalator forward, so to speak. I I don't think that our experience here would have near the purpose, meaning, or function that it does. You know, there's a a wonderful story. I forget which tribe it's from, but um, back when I used to teach mythology, I used to have my students read over this one, and it was one of the indigenous American stories. But they talk about when time, when the earth was first created, the great spirit gave the mother, the great spirit was maternal, and it gave human beings, the first woman, a choice of, do you want to live forever? Should people live forever? Or should they have a terminal period? Should they die? And at the time, the first woman said, oh, no, they should die. We should die. Okay, so be it. And then sure enough, a few years later, a child, her child is born and the child dies. And she's flipping out and she's saying, no, 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 wait, wait, I didn't mean it. Change it. And said, well, this was your choice. You know, you, you made it. But without the shadow of temporality, without the understanding of finality, there's not a lot of meaning to be derived to our lives or to what we do. You know, there's a profound sense of, I'm not sure what the word would be, but you know how it is, without the boot strap, the boot heel of Saturn on the back of our neck, we wouldn't get anything done. Things mm-hmm. wouldn't happen. You know, if there was always a do-over, if there was always a, that didn't count or, or whatever like that, What's the point? But no, seriously, it, it, it is time and the bootstrap of time that gives our lives meaning. If we did not have boundaries, we would not have form. And that is that is the separate of Bina. It is, you know, the, the great mother, the great womb, the activity of what Bina is. And Bina is Saturn. That activity, that is the cup that gives the water its shape. You're going down through manifestation without that structure, without that something to create form. You know, it's the first separate from the pillar of severity. If you didn't have that element of things to give shape to the energy that's manifesting, there wouldn't be anything to begin with. You have to have that to begin things. But without time, as you're saying, it's just dots 
on the twister map. Time really is our fourth dimension. They say we live in three dimensions, but we don't. We live in four dimensions. Time is the fourth dimension, right? It is those four dimensions that make space. Mm -hmm. height, but without time, there's emotion. There's nothing. That's kind of where I break with, well, not break with the Gnostics, because it really depends on what kind of Gnostic you are. But I would say of the Gnostics I've known in my life, I'd say more in the camp of like that sort of world denying like i mean by by its very nature the definition of the demiurge is is negative it trapped your soul here on this earth in a material plane so that's where i tend to the chance to be alive and breathing like the as you're saying the sort of structure of life that rather than being against the body and against the world because you're an eternal soul that's not supposed to be here it's like well maybe this is a good thing yeah well, keep in mind, I mean, the, the Gnostic mythology, first off, there are different stories with the Gnostic mythology. And, and that Gnostic story <laughs> you're talking about, I mean, there's a lot of the Gnostic, the so-called Gnostic mythology that you'll find in the books. And, oh, the Demiurge and the Elder Veoth and all these kinds of things. And then, it, you know, keep in mind a lot of that, these are myths. And myths mm -hmm. are stories used to describe concepts and to try and explain something which is too abstract to be grasped and, and we all we have to work with is language essentially but at the same time they're not always absolutely consider myself a gnostic there's no question but you know you don't have to ascribe to that aspect of gnosticism to be gnostic and i wouldn't say that that's even the most accurate it's one of the most famous ones but, oh well gnostics believe this that's what you'll find in your textbooks well there's a heck of a lot of gnostics out there that go yeah no I think there's also a big separation between the idea of gnosis, which is like inherently experiential and not necessarily tied to any sort of mythology and the historical Gnostics. Yeah. And then even within that, yes. you know, like I tend to be a Christian Gnostic, not because I think that like Jesus is the end all be all necessarily. I do love Jesus, but. <laughs> but but I was raised Christian, so it's just an easy mythology for me to use as a tool to understand the divine. Obviously, there's you know Gnosticism beyond Christianity as well. So. Yeah. Well, and what they give you in the textbooks, oftentimes, I mean, they're giving you that that version of Gnosticism, of course, is just like Christianity, heavily influenced by a lot of the Zarathustra, you know, Zoroastrian concepts, uh, where you have that dichotomy of you know matter bad, spirit good you know, the concept of the archons and, you know, Sophia made this world on her own and that makes it inherently fallen and all that good, happy stuff. I mean, there's elements in there, I think, that have some point. But, you know, I tend to come more from the idea, and I debate this with uh, one of my favorite Gnostics who likes to claim he's a Christian, the idea that we are also God's ability to navigate within the material plane. I'm a big fan of as above, so below. But the way I see that manifesting is that Keter's in Malkut and Malkut is in Keter. Um, how does God experience God's self through manifestation? It's all the same deity. It's all the same thing. It's a matter of how it's manifesting on that particular plane. We are God's attempt to seek to understand itself and to experience its own nature. And I think the realm of Saturn is a critical part of that. Because, you know, it's, it's almost when you think Pythagorean, you have God, right, the point of existence, you have I, and then I am, and then the biblical statement of I am that I am, that's your triangle right there, right? Here's your Pythagorean triangle. This is why most great religions manifest, they have a triad at their upper head. And every great religion, whether it says it or not, even polytheistic ones, tend to go down to a holy triumvirate which eventually collapses into a monotheistic location. But a lot of that is, you know, it's, there's your triangle, your, your Pythagorean, you know, you have the point, you have, you know, the second point, but the line, and then you have the triangularity because you can't see the line unless you have that third outside perspective. And it's that third outside perspective that is consciousness, which is kind of where the whole Jesus thing comes in. I don't have a problem with Jesus. I'm not, I would call myself Christian. Esoterically, though, the idea of the concept of Christ or Jesus, which became the personification of it, is the concept of, essentially, it's, it's the eternally begotten child. If you look at many of the 
like the Orthodox icons, the mother and child icons, the Black Madonna holding the child. And oftentimes in these icons, she's, you know, she's holding the child, looking at the child, the child looking at you. It's the concept that the child or the Christ, that is the constant reoccurring life bursting forth, you know, as an eternal child. As we speak, everything is in bloom. Everything is growing and spreading. And that which is not growing and spreading is decaying and dying. It's the, the two sides, you know, the two-sided polarity, but they're the same thing. It's the same manifestation back to the third self, back to being Benoth again. She is life and she is death. And death, Benoth, and we see death as the reaper. And it sort of makes sense we personify death as a male and the mother as a female, because once again, God is neither, God is both. So, of course, the sephira could be unification of male and female into its most perfect sense. Wow. Yeah, this is what I do in my spare time. This is what happens you don't watch time. <laughs> so I can say I need a hobby. Somebody help me fast. Yes, this is what I sit around doing all the time. It should be noted that you do also have a lot of hobbies. <laughs> um, I do lots of things, you know. Uh, unfortunately without that Saturnian assistance they're all kind of like oh I'll go chase this I'll make a clock now wait no I'll make a necklace I'll make a necklace with a clock no wait I'm gonna go and play with my toes yeah no it's not productive (laughs) actually what I do is all focused around the same thing it's like motion around the center of the spiral usually all the hobbies are based around trying to figure out this stuff it just helps me to think about it when I'm doing it in more physical forms. That's what I think is most interesting about your work is it's not necessarily, especially your clocks and things like that, you know, like you see it and you're like, oh, that's, that's beautiful. But then when you explain it, it's like you're casting a million spells of whatever you've made, because maybe it would be the kind of thing that like, if you spend a lot of time gazing at it, all these different layers of meaning would come out of it. But just superficially it's just like oh I made something very pretty and then talk to the artist it means all of these different things I suppose by the same token I don't know if you could have a very Saturnian mind and necessarily have so many co-occurring layers of complexity (laughs) going on I I think if if there was more structure in your brain (laughs) no offense (laughs) (laughs) you might not necessarily have oh like this means this means this means this means this because your boundaries and your definitions would be clearer I don't I think it adds something cool to the stuff that you make well keep in mind I think my saving grace is the fact I am a water sign scorpion which I don't know that might not be saving grace from what I understand from people most people seem to think scorpions are uh, pretty scary people but we can be I guess we can be when you look at Water, again, and I guess this is probably one of my long-standing challenges in life is as water. You know, I yeah, I can flow easily. You know, it's there's all sorts of all directions, every direction at one time, and I need that external structure to help me focus to, to focus to function. The colloquial term is ADHD off the charts. Right. You know, beyond ADHD, you know, the way my brain is shaped and apparently misshapen from what the professionals tell me. There's no structure on the inside, but it creates a lot of room for, as you say, the layering, the motion. And I guess maybe this is where the lack of boundaries is helpful because I see all the layers because they can coexist. And my impulse is to say, well, of course they coexist. They're always there. But I guess the structure, and maybe in this case drawback of Saturnian concept of what Saturn is, is the Saturn would be the spaces or the barricades, the lines in between the concepts that differentiate and separate them. I tend to be very resistant to those separations. To me, it makes perfect sense to go, oh, it's a clock. It's also a fractal. It's also a concept. Oh, it's also a working spell. <laughs> that to me makes perfect sense. I started doing the clocks because I was actually interested in exploring the fractals, uh, the fractal nature of time. The clocks are literally physical manifestations of fractals as they occur across time. But yeah, I mean, if you'd like to talk more about that, that we'll we'll also put links so people can find your clocks and buy them if they want. Well, I could even probably like a picture of one to explain kind of what's going on, but like the um, the easiest way to explain it, for example, with the tarot clocks. 
you know, and when you think about, if you think about time, and if you think about Kabbalah at its most basic, you know, this graph that it is, this graphic, you know, it's a, it's a model the way an atom is a model. It doesn't actually work that way, but it's a good way of thinking about it. It kind of makes it easy to think about. And when you think about the idea that the number two is not just a number, it's also a concept, it's also a sound, it's also a color, it's also a physicality. Each number is in itself, it manifests in an infinite number of ways. And you know math is not my strong point, so I will not even pretend to have a clue about math. But when you think about the concept, for example, pi, pi is can be expressed as a fractal. Pi expresses itself across a number of different planes. A Fibonacci sequence, you see that manifesting in our standard spiral manifestation. You can see fractals will manifest themselves across the material plane in a variety of ways. Four manifests, of course, as directions. It manifests as shape, you know, so on, so, so forth. It's the same way when I was playing with the clocks. Because when you think about the zodiac signs, right, we have 12 hours. So I was kind of thinking about the concept of three and four and three times four, you know, three being the spiritual triumvirate, four being the material plane. When you take three times four, what you have then is your 12. You have your 12 zodiacs, and your 12 houses. You also have the 12 hours, uh, twice of that, of course, which make up a 24-hour period of the day, and a clock. And as I'm messing with it, I'm thinking, oh, 12 hours. 12 zodiac signs, and then you go into the trumps with uh, tarot deck. And I was been using the Gustav Klimt, my favorite, because they're just so bloody pretty cards. And they still maintain very much accurate representation of the stuff from the basic, you know, Rider Way model. But, you know, you're essentially looking at the manifestation of something from, you know, point one. Of course, we don't start with zero to four, but starting with one and moving all the way down through the planes. But you're also starting with Aries moving all the way down through into Pisces. But then you still can break it down into your fours, right? Your, your four quarters, right? Your quarter hours, your full hours, your half hours. Um, I mean, all these concepts are built into it. And then what happens is it just happens over and over and over again, which is how shit works. Are all 12 zodiac signs represented by one of the major arcana? Or are they like two yeah. levels represented? twice i am not an expert in tarot be aware of that i use tarot as a tool i know that there is a representation of each card each zodiacal representation in the greater trumps you know you're going to have you know leo is the sun you know i, I don't i'm not even trying to pretend to put them all <laughs> i would assume cancer would be the moon capricorn would be the devil Yes. Yeah. Those yeah. are the only three I could think of where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'd be confident in saying that. Well, I think the lovers is Gemini. You know, I mean, it's with my memory, I don't like to go shouting things off the top of my head because I never trust my ability to recall things accurately because my things float around in my head too rapidly. I don't keep them straight well enough. That's unfortunately part of the consequence of having the type of head that I do is I'm really good conceptually, but it's those little details. Again, here's Saturn. Those little tiny segmented details that exist discreetly and on their own, I have a difficult time holding on to those. I have to really kind of work at that. Whereas going with the concepts and kind of following the flow and the movement of something is where I excel. But yeah, the tarot card has all of those, the tarot deck, as far as the, you know, the trumps do. Now, when I'm making the clocks, honestly, I did not go with using those cards. I went with numeric representation, 1 through 12, because... It just makes a hell of a lot more sense for a clock, number one. <laughs> number two, quite frankly, it's also, if I'm doing the trumps, I mean, because I also do the same thing using just using like the suit of cups or the suit of earth, you know, because you're still looking. In fact, using the suits is even more down to earth because then you're actually looking at the physical concrete manifestation of something and heading back up again. But I digress. You know, it, it's just. Well, that's also cool for like invoking something too, because. With the major arcana, like there's such different ideas, but if you just go with a suit, this can be an elemental cloth. Yes. And that's some of the ones I do are those. Like I have ones that are just the the element, it's just the pentacles, discs. And depending on how I put them together, what I'm doing, and I refrain from doing things to, you know, unless most people have no idea what the hell I'm doing, which is probably a good thing. 
<laughs> I already don't fit in well in society. <laughs> in some ways, yes. In some of these, that is exactly what they are. They can be used, they're designed to be able to be used for spell work if somebody knows what they're looking at. Some of my clocks are just pretty, but other my clocks have very specific purposes to them. And yes, you can take, for example, the tarot clocks, that is the, manifest, the manifestation of, as you said, pentacles, for example. And it can be, and depending on how I set it up and depending how a person, if they know what they're doing and would choose to, they can be set up to be used as a working spell. That as long as the clock is going, the spell is actually being essentially put out there, kind of like a prayer wheel, Tibetan prayer wheel. You know, you spin it, you spin, the prayers go out to the universe. Um, that's beautiful. Well, that's what I'm doing, that Saturnian altar I'm working on. Remember that, that big piece I'm doing? And that's going to be actually done with the second pentacle of Saturn in for the clock face. And then have the clock face coming out of that one. I'm still working on the mechanics of it, but that basically, depending on how I put that together, if I do it the way I'm probably going to wind up doing it, that will be an active living presence for as long as I'm crazy enough to have it going. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting the one clock that you made that we have at our house has a vitruvian man on it and i like i do not fuck with it if i need to know what time it is i only look at it if i'm thinking if i like want to look at it and think about the clock i don't look at it for the purpose of time ever Yay! which is interesting because it's just a natural inclination where i'm like nope I'll go look, I'll walk into another room <laughs> to find out what time it is before I try to actually tell time on it. Even though I'm, it says the time, it's, it's just like a, it's like a weird, not like a repelling because I, I love that clock. It's just, it only wants to engage at certain times, I would say. <laughs> well, it, it, they are all functional clocks, but you're exactly right. They are more meditation studies. A lot of my stuff, like a lot of the so-called paintings I do, I wouldn't call them paintings. I'm not a good painter. I think of them as more visual poems. I just finished one last night, finally. Um, and I had to finish it during a full moon because it started during a full moon because it's actually based on a shadow cast during the full moon coming off of my altar. Uh, I think right now I've just dubbed it Cyprianus because the shadow it's a shadow Cyprian, but it's actually an exorcism is what it is. I just had to get to the right moment before I could finish it. And it's a relatively simple piece. It's the nuances of painting, perspective, and depth, and oh, look how that color is used and magnificent. Yeah, that's not part of the vocabulary. I'm not that talented. Uh, I've never studied art. Uh, I just like to make shit. It's more for the representations, um, the meditation, and if a person knows. Because to me, art is, good art is a way of entering into we're taught the notion of art as being catharsis so to speak and it is but also you know there's a reason why so much of the religious and occult literature the orphic hymns so much of invocations are done in the form of poems and prayers artwork i think is the same thing these things can act as doorways or as pass keys into a being or a concept or a place or however you wish to frame it where it's the superficial you know the beauty is like hey that's really cool looking but there are pieces if you read oh hell if you read to me Yeats's piece he has a short one-act play called Cal uh, Calvary about the crucifixion uh, that to me is such a profound meditation on Gnosticism it's a great way to enter into the stream you know when you read especially when you read the part of the moon crazed heron looking at itself in the water art is an entrance it can be a doorway that's why our invocations and our prayers are written because when you step into them it's like tuning in a radio you can use them to find the frequency of the being that you are looking for or looking to invoke or to identify crickets because she's insane no, no, I was just thinking about it. I think you can take that part out. Oh, no, I will definitely be leaving it in. I'll take the part where I sound really dumb and don't have a good answer. No, no. <laughs> I take all the spaces out. Well, no, I mean, there's, it's not that you sound dumb. Or it's, I, there's not an answer to that. You know, it's <laughs> something that it's just something everybody, you know, magic is a very personal thing. And you don't have to call it magic. You can call it prayer. You can call it. You know, one's relationship with God, or however you wish to call it, but it's intensely personal. 
I think one of the, and I won't call it a secret because I think everybody fucking knew this until the Christians came along and just screwed everything up, right? That's like pure Christianity. When you get to, I think, how the ancients understood these things, the pre-Christian cultures. And I should clarify that. The Orthodox Church understands this. This is where they got into fight about the icons. Okay, you know what? I'm going to be... Protestantism had a heavy, profound influence on this because Protestantism, of course, with its emphasis on getting rid of pictorial representations right, as them being bad. You know, I think the older cultures understood that art and these things are uh, an entrance into the sacred. You know, I think that they understood that. And also, in some ways, I think that our intensely, our culture has become so based on the concept of literacy when everyone, the literacy and especially now the idea of accurate representation pictorially, the photograph, photography, you know, realism, so to speak, that Mm -hmm. is what it represents and back and forth. I think the ancients knew very well that, that this is why mythology was expressed in poems. This is why we communicated our history and our laws in the form of verse and pictures and statues. It's a much more three-dimensional way of representing understanding and knowledge. And I think that we in our culture have lost so much of that We've become so literal that we are completely cut off from, I don't want to say our souls because people will come out and throw eggs at me, but I think it's done a lot of damage to us in being able to enter into our own deeper elements. Uh, we've been trained to really stay on the surface of where things are based on what they look like and all the physical aspects of manifestation and we've walked ourselves off to the deeper aspects of it that go in the undergrounds. I would even take that a step further and say that it's I mean I wouldn't quite so quickly blame it specifically on Protestants but we don't need to get into our (laughs) never-ending Protestant debate (laughs) I would think about fundamentalism in general because I think you see that in Islam and you see it in Hinduism you see it all over the world where it's this very very literal understanding I would say most of my friends are atheists and most of them are also as literal as like a fundamentalist Christian, where it's not like within their, (laughs) it's not, it's not within the way that they think about things or religion to even conceptualize Christianity as a metaphor, engage with it in that way. But I think it's weirder to think like, oh, it either is literally true or it's worthless. What are you, why, why is there no possibility that it is neither literal nor worthless? Well, and that's where, you know, you talk about, boy, there's so many places to go off of that. On the one hand, I think Protestantism, and when you think about, I I love the essay, Weber's essay about capitalism and the Protestant culture. Maxwell Weber makes some amazing points in there about how Protestantism eventually led to capitalism as we understand it and how it affects so much of how we interact and understand the world it it, the mind frame which allowed the reformation you know the reformation what it brought about and the scientific revolution it brought about and the industrial revolution all those things but also when you think coupled that with the emphasis on science and our culture's emphasis on literacy even though our culture does a really shitty job with literacy we have such an emphasis on it i think the thinking you know, when you think about in the old days, way back in the old days, whatever the Dickens that means, a hundred years ago, with the churches, when they had a three-story church, right, a five-story building. Back where that term story comes from is the idea that each level of a church, each told a story using stained glass windows. The population wasn't literate. So they would use these pictorial representations as stained glass windows to tell a story. That's where we get the expression, oh, it's a 10-story building. Each level would have been a different story. People were able to look at pictures and read them and draw a narrative. They could look at these. They were somewhat fluent in the symbology of the times. We no longer, as a culture, are very good at decoding symbols. We are extremely literal. And I think this has to do with photography. You know, most people think photographs are representations of reality, unless they're directly obviously not in the sense of artistic photography but no i think you know just like when you think about like civil war photography the first war that was really photographed and we oftentimes have to you know have that discussion with students of recognizing that a lot of the most powerful photographs for civil war were staged it didn't mean they were fake but they were staged we have such a problem right now with 
information and the computer and social media and all these, you know, TikTok and oh, Instagram. Oh, I love Instagram. Yes, that's really what your life looks like. Your life really is all about beaches and pretty things on your table. And yeah, right, mofo. You go for that. Have you ever heard Bo, Bo Burnham's uh, White Woman's Instagram? <clears throat> but it's, it's a really good special all, all together. I, I loved that so much. Oh, there's a special? Yeah, yeah. That's part oh. of a whole, he did oh. an entire full length. It's longer than most comedy specials, actually. I do. All, all in his apartment. And it's the saddest, most poignant, beautiful, funny thing. Yeah, it's, you know, but those pictures, people think photographs are truth. There's a, a literacy. We have, our literacy has taken a very concrete, very definitive form. And as a culture, we have grown increasingly more illiterate when it comes to semiotics and symbology. And I think we're suffering for it. I think you see our religion suffering for it. Why are people running away from the churches? Because the churches, everyone keeps trying to approach them from this concept that this is some sort of a literal construct. Joseph Campbell put it so well in talking about the Bible. He said, reading the Bible, it, it's like when someone hands you a menu and you try to eat the picture. It's a picture of a hamburger. It's not actually the hamburger. We know that with a menu. But when someone hands us a religious book, we tend to mistake what we're reading for the truth of what's behind it, what it symbolizes. Yeah, it's like the old Zen cone of the finger yes. pointing at the moon. <clears throat> when I was in seminary, they used to use that one all the time. That you know, religion is the finger pointing at the moon. And we all wind up trying to worship the finger. Yes. Yeah, and I think that it's a lot of what we see right now, these fights, for example, over, quote, facts. As if anybody can argue about the concept of what a fact is. And, oh my goodness, alternative facts. What a concept. A stroke of genius, if it was capable, if that individual was capable of having a stroke of genius, that would be about all there was. Alternative facts. It's the idea that, granted, one can have different perspective on the same facts. But we have really are having a hard time understanding what facts are. And you know what? I'm going to be a brat. That brings us back to Saturn. Because it all brings us back to Saturn. Saturn is the beginning. And Saturn is the end. What is a fact? A fact is a specifically, it's supposed to be something which is clear, nailed down as a line of demarcation. This is what it is, and this is what it's not. How do we know? But like everything else in the material plane, when you drill into a concrete fact, there's going to be an abstraction behind it. For the most part. And if there's not, you're not looking. Shit. Oh, that might be a really good stopping point. Oh, maybe we could do it as a part two. Absolutely. Uh, All right. Hey, I'm I'm having fun. So, and actually, I'll be honest with you. I love talking about Saturn. It, it sounds insane, but I interact with Saturn a great deal, as I am gifted, and I've been able to experience this anthropomorphized concept of Saturn. And I, I like Saturn. I mean, he's tough, but I like him. I like him too. Okay. All right, love. We'll talk. All right. Bye, and I'll see you all soon. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.